Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm from a company called B Squared and I'm the host of the Sendcast, the podcast for special educational needs. Each week we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve our knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. On this week's podcast, we're discussing grief and how to support children and staff after a death or other loss. With me this week is Sarah Jane Critchley. Sarah Jane is a regular on this podcast. She's also an author, speaker, consultant, and coach. As well as this podcast, B Squared also run the Virtual Send Conference and Parent Talks. The Virtual Send Conference is a conference for schools that runs twice a year. It is a virtual conference, so this means the conference comes to you over the internet. We record every session. This means you can watch the videos whenever you need to. You can purchase access to future or past events. And for more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com. At the end of this episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Parent Talks uses the same approach, but it's designed to support parents across a range of areas. You can find out more about Parent Talks by going to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parent talks. Now on with the podcast. In this week's podcast, we are discussing how to support children and staff to understand death, bereavement, and loss. Discussing this with me is Sarah Jane Crickley from Different Joy Partnership. Sarah Jane was previously the program manager of the Autism Education Trust. She has a huge range of other things she does. And rather than going into all of that, go into the show notes, click on her website, and you can find about all the amazing stuff Sarah Jane does. So welcome to the show, Sarah Jane. Hello, Dale. And hello, everybody out there. It's lovely to speak to you today. So we're recording this podcast at the end of August 2020, and currently there have been around 41,000 deaths linked to COVID. There is talk of a second wave, possibly a third, and supporting a child or staff member after death, bereavement or loss is something that normally happens infrequently. But with the number of deaths that we've already happened and the number that's being speculated, it's near that schools will need to spend more time thinking about and preparing for. Absolutely. I'm going to start the podcast just with a bit of a content warning that we will be talking about death. That is an inescapable part of talking about bereavement. So if any of these issues trigger you, there will be some resources at the end, but feel free to dive out if you find it distressing at any time and come back when it is a safe time for you to do so. I'm also going to make a slight apology because there's the odd noises off in the background. My next door neighbours, God bless them, are doing building work. So I apologise for any banging. So one of the things I wanted to hit on first was just to sort of reiterate what Dale said in terms of this has been an unusual period, that we have never had a period where so many people have died in such a short period. And it is going to be something where even if you've been lucky enough to avoid having anybody in your school or in your family who's suffered bereavement, you are likely to have somebody now who does that. But interestingly, when I was doing some research into the numbers of people who are in school, the numbers of young people who suffered a bereavement, one of the things I found that really amazed me was that by the age of 16, one in 29 pupils will have suffered from a bereavement of either a parent or a sibling. So if you imagine that out of your class, on average, one person in each of your classes, if your class is 30 people, one of those people will have been affected on average. Wow. And that's pre-COVID. So... I think it is something that we need to be much better at dealing with. It is something we need to be much more aware of. And I think societally, we're a bit rubbish at dealing with death and dying. It is an entirely natural process. This is a very dangerous planet. Very few of us get off it alive. (laughs) You know, there's the odd astronaut here and there. But by and large, 
we will all come to the end of our lives at some point or other. It's a matter of where and when and how, and most importantly, supporting those who are left behind. Yeah. So we know that bereavement is a hugely painful experience to go through. This is one of the most painful experiences you will ever have in your life. And there's a really good quote from Bowlby, who you will know from the attachment work, who talks about love of a lost person is one of the most intensely painful experiences any human can suffer. Not only is it painful to experience, but it's painful to witness. To the bereaved, nothing but the return of the lost person can bring true comfort. And that's one thing that we know we cannot do. So there's nothing that you can do that will ever bring a lost person back or bring someone who's died back. That just doesn't happen. So we have to think about ways of creating a new life without that person in it. And that is a uniquely painful and difficult thing to do. And guiding and helping and supporting somebody through that process is, for me, one of the highest callings that we have. So why I'm talking to you about this now on the Sendcast is because I know that you're incredible people. I know that you are caring about people. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening in the first place. So you are my tribe, and I want to help you through this. This is a period where we're going to be asked to do things we have never had to worry about before. We kind of thought somebody else could deal with it. We kind of thought, well, maybe that's for a charity. Maybe that's for mental health services. Maybe that's for somebody else. But actually, you know what? That's for all of us. And we all have a responsibility to take our part and to be able to deal with it better ourselves. We know CAMs are overstretched and you can barely get access to CAM services at the best of times at the moment. They will not be in a position to be able to deal with this on the scale that we're talking about. We know that schools are at the front line of mental health services. We know that you will have members of staff who are nominated as mental health leads and that this will fall within your purview, whether you like it or not, whether you feel prepared for it or not. So what I'm going to do today is to try and help you and give you some resources to be able to help you do that better. And one of the things that struck me when I was thinking about this particularly is that when you're thinking about death and dying, you have to be aware of your own responses first. And we will all have different experiences of death and dying. And they will change over time. And if you're working with children, they will be experiencing this for the first time. And that is really difficult. They, you, they need you to guide them through and to support them in that experience because it's brand new for them. It may not be brand new for you. And it's very different losing somebody to a sudden injury or to an accident or because they've taken their own life than it is if somebody is old and infirm and has died at the end of a long life. You know, those experiences are fundamentally different. With the older person, you can always sit and look back and talk about the life they've led. In yeah. fact, you're, you might be the grandchildren. So there's a lot of things of, as you get old, you, you, you do die. So you can sit there and go, you're young, you're born, you get old, you die. Fine. But with this year, there's lots of different ages dying. Oh, yeah. And there have been people who have been perfectly healthy have died. So it's, it's very different. Absolutely. And it's often unexpected. And unusually this time, we have not been able to do the things that we would normally do to support people. So if you've got somebody who's been really ill and they've been taken into hospital, normally the first thing you do if someone's in, in, in hospital is go with them. Yeah. You can't go in the ambulance with them. You can't go and visit them. You can't see them. And that's very different. That makes it more painful more difficult 
and I've got friends who've lost people during this particular period. And one of the most difficult things for them is to not be able to be with other members of their family who are grieving. Yeah. And that is particularly difficult. And I was just reflecting on how these things kind of impact on you over time. And I've lost a number of people in my family. So I'm speaking as somebody who has been multiply bereaved, partly because I'm just that old. You know, if you live long enough, you lose people. You know, it's kind of, they will die. People will die. They do, people die around you. And it is just inevitable. And I was just reflecting on how this happened in my first experience and how strange that was. So my first experience of death was actually a really surprising one. So I had an amazing teacher, a fantastic teacher called Mr. Oh, I've completely forgotten his name now. Mr. Andrews. Sorry, I've kind of, he, I just blanked. It was a stress. Mr. Andrews was an absolute genius of a geography teacher. So he was young, he was energetic, he was enthusiastic. I probably had a bit of a crush on him, but from an incredibly safe distance. You know, he's just one of those people that you would love to go into his classroom with because he just lit the thing up. And he went on holiday in the summer holidays and drowned in the Bermuda Triangle. He was swept out to sea and drowned. And I was 15. And he was the first person I knew who died. And there was nobody who kind of said anything other than this kind of went round the grapevine, but there was no service, there was no commemoration, the school didn't say anything. We just kind of went back into what would have been his class when we went back and he wasn't there. It was somebody else who was actually a bit rubbish. It wasn't another really good teacher. And I remember really clearly being sat in a car looking at a a church clock, thinking, how can the sun still be shining? Why is this? Why does everything seem normal when this isn't normal? I don't feel the same. And this wasn't somebody I was close to as a member of my family or that I had an intimate relationship with at all. It was just somebody I knew and really liked. I thought he was amazing. He was just gone. I remember I had my well, um, my dad's father died quite young, and but we didn't see him that much, so it didn't affect me. So it wasn't a huge loss in terms of how it affected me. But I think the first death that really affected me was a man called Andrew, <laughs> and he was a friend of my sister's, so four years older than me. Didn't really know him. Probably in total said I probably hundred or so words to him. So it wasn't a huge impact on my life, but he lived up the road. He had a motorbike. I thought he was cool. He was one of those 16-year-olds who got the 50cc motorbike at school in year 11. So that was top of the call when I was at school in year 7, 8. Oh, yeah, and I know him. I know him. Yeah, I'm cool as well because I know all that sort of stuff. And he grew up and he ended up working for a motorbike magazine. So he had a nice motorbike and it was all... You loved your fast motorbikes and cars when you were a young man. But I think when he was about 21, something went wrong on his motorbike. He got thrown off the motorbike and got hit by a car. Instant death. Instant. Like with Mr. Andrews, unexpected, out of the blue. And it's like, oh, yeah, he's dying. I was like, oh, okay. How? Oh. But at that moment, it didn't affect me. I was like, oh, okay. It was a few days later when I was playing out in the road and I heard a motorbike go past i looked up for him Mm. and then the light bulb moment of it's not him it's never gonna be him yeah that's when it hit me it didn't hit me when i was told he died it's when that i had that little interaction that i was expecting when that's when it went you're never gonna have that again that person's gone and that was my first real experience of death affecting me 
And it does. It takes you in surprising ways as well. And it's when you don't expect a young person to die. Mm. And almost if they, you almost want, you expect some warnings, like an old person, they get more frail. They're heading towards my father-in-law. You could see him getting more frail. You know it's coming. You're preparing yourself already. When a younger person dies unexpectedly, there is no preparation you can do. Mm, absolutely. And I think the thing to think about is when we're trying to support people, we have take all of our experiences of death with us. It's kind of like the thing that struck me was I was thinking about Mr. Andrews and how lovely he was. And then I was thinking about the other people I'd lost. So my grandfather died as a very old man. And it was very sad, but he was very old and he'd been very ill. And it wasn't unexpected. We were preparing for it. You know, it was a natural end to a wonderful life. And there was something beautiful and brilliant and, and fantastic. He got to die at home. And I missed him terribly. I still do miss him terribly. But it was right. There was a rightness about that. As sad as it was, there was a rightness about that. And I don't think we can feel that about people who've been taken right now with COVID because it's sudden and it's unexpected, even if they are older, even if they are maybe not in the best health, they're taken too soon. And I was very aware that I was thinking about the death of my father, and that was, he died when he was 62, which isn't any great age these days. And he was ill for a while in the run-up to it, but that was the most painful experience. Even as an adult, losing a parent is a really painful experience. It's kind of like being an orphan when you lose both. And I was very struck. I was listening to my aunt, and when her mother died, who was the second, my grandmother, she said, I'm, I'm an orphan now. And she was in her 40s or 50s at this point, and it just really struck me that the relationship we have with our parents doesn't change. We're always their child. They're always our parent. And so you can feel orphaned even at a much older age, and that can be incredibly painful. And one of the best things that ever happened to me, I was talking to a lovely colleague um, who's somebody that the lovely Beverly knows as well, who after I lost my father, I was very sad about that, incredibly sad about it, found it really, really difficult. She said, yes, I remember what it was like to lose my father too. And we became members of the, paid up members of the Dead Dads Club. <laughs> it was kind of, it was just wonderful. It's almost as if, if you're not with anybody who's had some similar experience, you feel alienated from the rest of the world around you. And I think there is something really important to share these experiences so that people don't feel so alone. Because actually, everybody dies. It's a very common experience in different ways, different times, different situations. But you're never the first person to lose a parent. You're never the first person to lose a child. You're never the first person to lose a friend. There are always people around you who have had that sort of experience. And they may not be in your immediate circle, but there are people out there. And you may, there may be that it's happened, you don't know. There are friends I know yeah. who have lost siblings at an early age. No idea. And uh, yeah. somebody I've known for over 20 years, he has an audio recording of his sister. And there's lots of loss that happens. But it's one of the things, you don't broadcast. You don't have a T-shirt saying, I lost my dad. Hmm. so it's only when you talk about it that you find those connections and just one thing to touch about when you talk about losing a parent is when you grow up if you almost have one of those very very moving montages go through your head of your childhood generally for most people everything changes in that picture the location the car the house the activities the sports everything changes but hmm. there's always that constant your parents 
until they're not. And as you get older, you get to that moment where you, for me, that you realise your parents are getting slightly frail mm. and they're not as strong as they were. But for some children, especially with COVID, that rock has been removed, mm. that consistent, that whatever happens, my mum or my dad are there. Taken, you say take it for granted, you just assume, yeah, your parents, they brought me into the world, they're going to be there. Yeah. And suddenly they're gone and nothing can prepare you for that. And nothing. this is a world-shaking moment. It is an absolute world-shaking moment. And if you lose somebody really important to you, there is a hole in the universe. There's a hole that it will not be filled with anything else. It's not, it never, no one else can ever take that place. There will always be a gap, but that changes over time. So we'll talk a little bit more about how that works as we go through. But when we're thinking about our responsibilities, if we're helping children or if we're a parent or if we're a teacher and, and the child comes in, we need to be aware of our experience because that will affect how we react to other people who have had loss. And you need to be aware that your loss may be triggered by seeing them. So if you see somebody who's incredibly distressed and that then tips you back into your loss, you need to be aware that that can happen so that you're then not dysregulated when you're helping them. So an unregulated adult can't help a child who's not regulated. You have to have somebody who is safe and secure enough to be able to give them that support. And there's a moment in which you have to make that decision about who's going to tell a child that somebody has died. And we had to make that decision when my father died. We kind of said, how do we do this? And it was really difficult. So I was very upset. And we'd been traveling. I'd been traveling to and fro from Birmingham. And I live, I live in Kent. So this is a, a large journey. I've been doing this for probably about three or four or five months when he was in hospital and really ill. And so we'd kind of done a bit of the preparation. He's really poorly. He's very ill. He's not going to get better. He, he will die. He's not going to get better. He will not come back. And we had to decide how to tell them. And I decided just to be totally straightforward and honest. And I shared the fact that I was upset, I was sad, he had died, that he wasn't coming back. And just did that honest, straightforward conversation. But when you are really upset yourself, you have to have another adult who can be safer. So one of the best bits of advice is to have somebody else there with you. So if you're really upset and you're a, a wreck because it's incredibly distressing and there's no reason why it should be and you should not expect that you have to be okay when you're not, that's important too, but that it's important for you to get support at that time. And for me, I was really lucky that I had my husband who was absolutely brilliant and is a rock in that scenario. So he was able to be that safe person. And the school were fantastic with my daughter. They have a, a brilliant nurture group, a brilliant pastoral team, and the Reverend Rachel did a fantastic job of supporting my daughter when, frankly, I felt I couldn't. I didn't have it in me to do that. And it's okay if you don't always, you know, if, as long as you can pull on other people that can help. It's about putting a, a support structure around a child. It doesn't have to be all one person. And that's a good time to ask for help. Don't just lock yourself away and assume that it's going to be all right because it won't if you don't actively put things in place. So that was quite a, a difficult experience to go through and to think through how that might happen. And if you've got a staff team, you may find that maybe one of you is better with a particular young person and another one's better with somebody else. And you may feel closer to them or you may find a particular situation triggering and say, well, actually, no, I'm sorry, I can't deal with that. And ask for help from another colleague and say, can somebody else take this one? 
And I think we need to be open and have these conversations and say, look, this is part of my story and I'm just, I'm feeling really wobbly about this. Can you help? I'm feeling really wobbly is okay. Because sometimes if a child has lost their parent, sometimes them, if, if that person can manage it, is maybe talking to a staff member who may have lost their parent. Mm. It's that connection and looking at them going, well, you're all right. Yeah. It's not amazing, but you've got through this. So there is, it's often having that connection helps as well. As you said, the uh, Dead Dads Club. Yeah. <laughs> that connection, yeah. that reassurance that almost like you look at each other and you know what you've both gone through. Yeah. And I think it's really helpful. It's very, really important to make anyone feel they're just not alone because you're not. You know, you really aren't. So it's finding somebody who can do that. When you're thinking about grief, grief is normal and it's different for everybody. So how you feel at any time is going to vary from one moment to the next. It's going to vary from one situation to the next. And some of you who've looked into grief may have come across the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, which is a wonderful thing. It looks like a curve, it looks like a sort of up down, upside down U. And there are different stages. She's coming for a lot of criticism, and I'll explain why. There are different stages that you may experience at any time in grief. But by putting it on this sort of upside down U, it makes it look like you progress safely from one thing to another. That's not actually how it works. But the sort of stages that she talked about, which are helpful, because thinking people often experience these sort of emotions. So you would often experience shock when you first hear it. So it's like, this can't possibly be the case. And just feeling numb and not knowing how to react to something is normally how most people will experience it first. Then there's denial, which is you've got to be kidding. You can't, that guy can't possibly never be coming back on his motorbike. It can't, it's impossible. Yeah. He can't, that can't happen. He's too young. Why, how can that happen? That can't, that isn't the case. That can't be the case. Then often people will feel anger. That's, well, it's just ridiculous. Why on earth did that guy run into him? Why was the motorbike wrecked? You know, trying to assign blame sometimes. People often try and assign blame at that particular point. And it's not that that's what they really think. It's that you have to, it's an expression of your anger and frustration and fury and, and sometimes feeling abandoned. So how? dare they leave me I'm not ready to be left they can't do that and you can be angry at the person for going and that's perfectly natural and normal and then there's something about bargaining and often children get caught in this it's kind of well maybe if I behave this way then they won't be dead maybe if I do this then it won't be real maybe if I behave perfectly it'll keep everyone else safe or it doesn't matter anymore there's no point in me doing it so then you kind of get into depression, which is just the, there's nothing you can do. It's just a real flat period. So you think, yep, that's happened. Now what? I'm shrugging. Yeah. That's no help in a podcast. <laughs> shrugging on a podcast <laughs> isn't any good, is it? <laughs> it's kind of, sorry. That was a, a verbal shrug. There's kind of depression. What next? And you may need some specific help at that particular period. And it's worth talking to a doctor. Sometimes medication can help at that particular period. I did actually go and see a doctor at one point after my grand died because I was so distraught and found that really difficult. And then she said, well, we can give you something if you want to help you through this period. And I said, well, if this is a normal, natural part of the grieving process, I'd rather experience this normal, natural part of the grieving process. But everybody is different and you may just find that chemistry needs to be changed slightly. So it depends how often you get stuck in it. You can get stuck in different bits and yeah. it's worth 
just bearing in mind everything is normal to experience at different times and different places. But if you get stuck in any one phase, that's the time to ask for help. Then the sort of testing is kind of, well, is it okay for me to still laugh? Is it okay for me to go out? Is it okay for me to go to the place where they used to be? Is it okay? you know what what can i what can i do now is it safe is it all right and then the final thing is around acceptance oh flipping it that's happened okay hate it but okay it's not going to change okay and then if you're really lucky you get to the renewal phase and the wonderful thing about realizing that no one lives forever is realizing that you have a responsibility to make the best out of the time you have and that can be a really positive thing. So if you get into that phase, you're doing really well. But the, the problem with the whole grief cycle is that it's not sequential. So you don't go from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing. And I'm going to have three days here and two weeks here and six months there. And it doesn't work that way. So not everybody has everything. Different people experience different things at different times. It can be absolutely fine for ages. And then all of a sudden you'll hear something on the radio and it'll just remind you of them. I think also depending on how someone dies. So my father-in-law died not long ago and he was 98. Hmm. Outlived two wives. Wow. He'd kind of given up on life because he's outlived two wives. So he kind of wanted to go, but he also didn't know how to give up. Hmm. Phenomenal man. And he slowly deteriorated and it got to the point where you probably went through a lot of those stages while he was still alive yeah and there wasn't anger because it was we saw his death as a release yeah so in those situations it's a very different you might skip whole steps there's also you're probably not feeling blame yeah it is very different and i can imagine a certain especially with more elder people dying you can skip those it's expected and also, I think when you're not that direct person, so when my mother-in-law died, so that was when my daughter turned two, it was you're watching that person as your connection, but then you're thinking about your loved person, your loved ones mm. who are more affected. And sometimes when someone dies in that situation, feelings get very complicated because part of you saying it's over. Mm which a lot of you feel, but then you can sit there and you can start to see the pain go from your loved one because they're not, they're feeling less pain because they're, they're, they're mum. And it's, it's a very complicated world. Mm. It, it's not a direct, listening to that thing, I was going, no, no, not felt that one. But interesting, one bit which I almost felt, but it might be in that bargaining is, is feeling blame. Yeah. But would that be in the bargaining stage? Not necessarily. I mean, it, I think these things aren't cut and dried. So the nice thing about the grief cycle is it gives us a kind of framework to throw things at and say we don't agree with, which is kind of always a yes. useful thing. And I think people are far more varied and the situations are far more varied. So what we know about children at a certain age, and I'll, I'll talk about different ages and stages in a minute, but there comes a certain age at which children start to develop magical thinking and they think, if I put the stone here, maybe that won't happen. Or, you know, they start to think it's my fault or maybe it's because I shouted at them before they went out the door or, you know, all sorts of things. And that's where if you internalise that blame for something that has actually nothing to do with you, that can be quite toxic. Yeah. 
So if we just talk very quickly about what children have at different stages, that might be really helpful for, for listeners right now. So even as young as tiny, tiny babies can pick up on the fact that there's been a bereavement around them. So even from the ages of naught to about six months, tiny babies can be aware that a, a main caregiver has gone and they can react to the separation from that main caregiver and would normally become more fussy or make um, do angry crying. So who would cry as a real despair because they've heard that person often in the womb. They've heard them for months. It's kind of, you are my survival and you have gone. What do I do? So this is a panicked response. So even as young as that, and if you have somebody who's experiencing bereavement, who's in charge of a small baby, then they'll often pick up on that emotion and react differently. So they'll become more unsettled, more fussy because the person around them is feeling unhappy. And they'll pick up on the emotional temperature without knowing what it is or how to deal with it. So it's just to be aware that that's quite likely to happen. And then from six months to two years, what they will often do is they'll become more clingy and they'll often become primal or could become quite angry or could in fact start looking for the person who's gone. So often toddlers will go around and look for granddad who's gone and say, granddad's died. Oh, granddad must still be in the shed. So they can go toddling down to the shed to look for granddad because that's where granddad was. Because they won't have the object permanence. They won't recognise that that person has permanently gone, that they've died, that they're not coming back. That doesn't develop until quite a lot later. So between the ages of two and five, they still don't understand that death is permanent. So you can tell a child that somebody's died, but they won't necessarily understand what that means. They'll say, oh, okay, granddad's dead. But if I make this special thing for granddad, will he come back and see it? Will granddad come back for my birthday? Will mum come back for my birthday? Will dad walk back through the door tonight? There's no permanence to that understanding. So you're going to have to say things again and again. That's going to be really distressing for the adults around. If you've just lost your partner and your child is constantly saying, is daddy coming back? And daddy isn't coming back. And that can happen whether they've actually died or if they've divorced or if they've gone away. So you can experience the same loss, the same grief for somebody who's disappeared from your life for whatever reason, whether it's through bereavement or otherwise. And that's worth knowing about. So then when they get to be about five, from around five, and obviously these are the general ages and developmental stages are different to chronological age. So if you've got a child with special needs, they may be responding to a different age range. But from five to 10, then you tend to find that young people are experiencing a growing understanding that death is permanent. And one of the most useful things that you can do at that stage is that they start to understand and express sympathy for other people. So they might start looking and saying, giving you an extra hug because you look unhappy. You know, they'll start to understand that people around them are being unhappy. And one of the most useful things you can do is to have a pet or look at things that are going to die so that they get an idea of things being going from one state to another. So that it becomes something that's familiar and understandable, not completely incomprehensible. Weirdly, one of the best things we did was to have pets. So we had two guinea pigs and I remember my kids being so upset we had naughty and lovely naughty belonged funnily enough to my boy can't think why lovely belonged funnily enough to my girl can't think why they called them that but they first of all lovely died and that was really upsetting and then naughty died and we got very upset and we put a little plaque we buried them in the garden put a plaque on the wall and there's still a plaque on the wall made from Welsh slate it says naughty and lovely where we buried them but they were really upset about it and I was talking to my uncle about it who's a farmer 
And being a farmer, he's very pragmatic. And he said, well, the one thing about livestock is you're always going to have dead stock if you have livestock. <laughs> oh, right. OK. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it quite that way. But it's yeah. it's really useful. And you get to experience those emotions. And then it's not a lesser emotion because it's a pet. It's, it's full on grief. And those pets mean everything to children at that age. You know, that can be really, really important. But it's a way of them understanding that process, that things are alive and then they die and that it's permanent and that they don't come back and that it's normal and natural. And you can make that safe for them and you can make that more safe for them because you're not involved in it as a, a relationship with a human who you know, love and have just lost. So that changes between five and ten. And then when they're teenagers, they basically have an adult understanding of death, but without the emotional resilience to deal with it, without the life experience that helps and mitigates partially against that. So kind of it changes as you get older, as children get older, but it will also change with emotional development and any particular other needs that they have. Right. So when you're in schools and if you're supporting somebody, you might see a whole range of reactions. So let's just talk about what you might see because it might not be what you expect. So you might think, if you haven't ever met anybody who's been bereaved, that what you see is a child who cries the minute that they're told the news. Well, often they won't. They'll go out and play, partly because they're in shock and they're not processing, and partly because if they're young, they won't realise that that's permanent yet. Yeah. So they won't necessarily react the way you expect them to. And often children will actually mirror the result, the emotions around them because that's what's happening. So you'll often see even quite a young child will be upset if an adult around them is upset, and that's just normal mirroring. That's what happens generally. But equally, they may act in totally different and unexpected ways. So you may find that you get a child who's very angry all of a sudden, and that's the way that they're just expressing it, and often that's because they feel abandoned. So if the significant adult in your life has just disappeared... That is massive. You were talking earlier about how important that is when that person goes. And we were talking about how that feels as an adult. Well, it feels even worse as a child because that's the one thing, the one person you thought would always be there and then all of a sudden they've gone. And then if you're looking at the other members of your family, they will be grieving too. So they will not be the same people that they were before either. So that stability has gone. And this is where schools can make such a big difference because they are stable. They are consistent. They have the capacity to be the same they were the next day and the day after and the day after. And the teacher can be the same and the teacher won't be affected in the same way by that. So they are a safe place. They can be a, a light relief, time out from the situation that they're dealing with elsewhere. So that can be a wonderful thing. And often children won't react at all. So they may be not reacting in school because... This is the time that they get to have this grief thing and then just put it on the side and go away and leave it behind and be happy without worry, feeling guilty that they're being happy when their mum or whoever is being really upset. They can just be themselves and it's time out. And we all need time out from intense emotions. And even if you're in the middle, in the depths of the worst things in your world, you can still laugh. You can still have an amazing time. And my father was very ill for, for a, a, quite a while, but we laughed more in his last two or three weeks than we had laughed as a family in years because we saw the absurd in things and because we needed it for light relief. So we took absurd things, we shared old family jokes, we just did anything we could to make that more fun and lighter. And that was really important. 
And I think that that really is part of the process. And even going back to um, your pets, mm. lovely and naughty, is you've probably still got photos in your house of them. Oh, yeah. You've probably, I don't know so much with guinea pigs, but definitely with dogs and cats and stuff, you've got memories you can talk about. So we had a three-legged cat called Watson. <laughs> and we've had cats since then, but he is my favorite. Oh. And he was more, he was literally the idea of a therapy cat. He literally, if you're feeling rubbish or ill, you'd get into bed feeling rubbish. Three minutes later, you'd open your eyes and he'd be there looking at you. <laughs> and he'd curl up with you. Yeah. And it was always so nice. And it was like, it was literally like therapy. However you felt, good, bad, or whatever, you lay in bed and he'd appear Absolutely. and he'd want strokes. And it was just lovely. And he died a very long time ago. But the, we still talk about mm. it. We still reminisce. We've still got his photos up. And with families, the same. So you going through those jokes and reminiscing, although he was still around, you're kind of finding the good, talking about the good things, remembering his life, doing all of that. And when I worked many moons ago at Ikea in Croydon, there was an amazing, amazing bloke called Alfonso Coward uh, who died. And he was from Jamaica. and. I'd been to very, very typical English funerals and I went to his funeral and loads of us turned up for my care looking really, really sad. We were the only sad people in the church. <laughs> Brilliant. Everyone else was celebrating and we learned so much about him we didn't know and they really, really celebrated his life. It was phenomenal. And I've still, that was uh, 20 one years ago, 22 years ago. And I can remember the funeral. I remember him. I remember all these things. So this is where people, he's still alive in my head because I've got these memories. And I think with COVID, one of the things which I think really impacted people with COVID is you couldn't meet up. Mm. There was a limited number at a funeral. You couldn't have the wake. So part of that grieving is remembering the good. Absolutely. Remembering the stories, having a laugh. Remember how annoying he was. Remember how he was used to that? He was always like, oh, but remembering everything about him, the good, the bad, the ugly, you remember everything about them. And lots of people haven't had that experience. So they're trying to come to terms with it on their own. And if they're mm -hmm. feeling down, they have not got someone telling them great, amazing stories. Oh, do you remember when dad did that? Oh, you haven't. And that's a big part with, I think, with COVID that's been taken away from people. Absolutely. And I think that's really difficult. We need to start thinking about how we can put in place rituals that will help us to get that back. So some people have done virtual wakes. So they've done wakes over Zoom, things like that, yep. which is, is a way of doing it. But I think there will be a time where we need to get back together and we need to physically console each other. Yeah. So I'm quite looking forward to that happening. And it may take a while. And there's something different about having the, there's the time at which you have the committal or the burial or whatever. And then there's the time at which you ha can have a memorial service and a memorial celebration. And I think there's something really powerful about just leaving that until we're ready, leaving that until it's safe. You know, you can phone people, you can be in contact with them. But if we can't actually physically hold people right now, then we'll do it when we can. And sometimes it doesn't even have to be structured. If, if we are allowed to meet up as big families at Christmas and have that big Christmas dinner, you'll probably find that over the, that Christmas time, you will talk of your loved ones that have gone. 
and you will go through all of those stories and you'll remember them at Christmas. You remember them all these different things and that will be part of the healing. Absolutely. And the other thing we need to think about for particularly younger children is that they will ask repeated questions. So they'll want extra reassurance. They'll want to know. They'll keep asking if somebody's coming back because they don't know that they're not coming back and that that will keep happening again and again. And you need to keep providing that reassurance and that real pragmatic response. It needs to be a straightforward, factual, accurate response. And that gets quite hard right now. So I can imagine, why is daddy not coming back? Yeah. Because. And they might ask you that question. And then they might have that realisation. Well, if daddy's gone and daddy didn't know and you didn't know, how do you know you're not going to go? Exactly. Those extra worries appear. Yeah. And you said that we weren't expecting. So you're now just saying to the child that this could happen at any moment. So that adds more anxiety. It is, it's a very difficult, very difficult path. Absolutely. And lots of children will become far more insecure and will become anxious and worried. And we're very well aware that some children will be reluctant to go back to school if they've lost a parent. They may be worried that if they go away, their other parent may die too. And that is a heavy load for a child to bear. Because you can't suddenly say, oh, well, no, it'll all be fine. Because the evidence that they have is that it won't all be fine. You know, there's, we can't guarantee that it will be fine. Yeah, because that wasn't going to be, that wasn't going to happen, but it did. And it's, there's a lot. And I think COVID's just made it all harder. Absolutely. And you will find that some children suddenly start wetting the bed. You'll find that some children suddenly get headaches or stomach aches or, other pain, aches and pains, because their body is actually expressing the stress that they can't verbalise. So in a way, if you're able to be with them and give them other ways of talking through and expressing that, it doesn't have to be verbally, then you're actually giving them an outlet for doing that so that their body doesn't have to carry quite so much of that pain. Because it is pain. Emotional pain can be expressed physically as well as verbally and mentally. So it's just being aware that that can happen. And you may also notice that they start play acting about death so you may find children when they're out at play suddenly start playing hospitals and nurses where people die and people are on ventilators and maybe teddy's on a ventilator and teddy dies you know you may well see these because they've heard about it they may have seen it they it's in the air as a concept and if they're aware of that then that may be what they're acting out and it's actually quite good for them to act it out you know it gives it's a way of them reconciling and understanding and processing what's actually happening to them it's also a way of them letting you know how they saw things happen, yeah. what their understanding is. Absolutely. I'm a great fan of play therapy. I think play therapy is one of the best things in the universe because it gives children, particularly young children, the chance to actually express things in a way that doesn't require them to be verbal and vocal you know, necessarily. They can just express it in different ways. And there are some amazing play therapists out there who are doing some really good work right now. So big up to all our play therapy colleagues out there. You're doing a fantastic job. Thank you. You have our unearning gratitude. So keep going. Definitely. So I want to think about the sort of things that you can do that will actually make a difference. So what can you do? Very tangibly, very practically. The first thing is to tell them that grief is normal, that what they're experiencing, what they're feeling is normal, that we all feel those sort of emotions. They are not odd, strange, different, bad for feeling like that. So to validate how they feel, but to help them to express that in ways that are okay. So you can feel really angry that daddy has gone. 
that you can't hit yourself or your sister as a result. You can hit this pillow, you can hit rip up paper, you can smash an old plate if I've given you a box of things to do, but you can't hurt yourself and you can't hurt someone else. So it's around finding different ways to express that without undermining the right to have that emotion because we don't want that emotion to be turned down. We want that emotion to be expressed in a way that's safe. The second thing is to be really honest about what's happening and preferably it is. So if you have warning, to be able to use that. You talked about how important it was when you've got somebody who's ill for a long time and then dying. You're able to do some of that processing of the grief and the shock and the being left behind as they are ill and as they are dying so that the shock of the death is less. Your capacity to be able to grow through it is better because it isn't such a shock. You have less of a shock in that process. So if you are able to, then that's helpful. Don't say if somebody's going into hospital don't say oh they're going into hospital so they'll be made better if you don't know that's the case because they may not be and you will not be trusted again if you lie about this so children will remember that they may not remember it and tell you that but they will it will undermine the relationship you have with them subconscious yeah So you must be honest about it, whether it's good or bad or indifferent, you must be honest. The next thing is to answer any questions that they have because they don't know. They haven't seen anybody dying before. They haven't experienced that before. So you have to be able to ask the questions that they have. And they may be things like, (laughs) does granddad need any food anymore? Won't he be cold if he's in the ground? Do I need to put something in to wrap him up? You know, it's kind of, no, you won't need that because... You have to explain what dead is. (laughs) So we'll come on in a moment to what that is. And that that would have to involve talking to the family. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of taking this partly as a family thing. You could not say, yeah, he's in the ground, and then find out that he was not in the ground. He was um, cremated or... Yeah. And the family's beliefs. There's a lot tied up around that. Yeah, we'll come to that in a moment. So it's checking the understanding and to make sure that they, they actually understand what's happened. So you may say something that they may not think, they may not understand the same thing by it. So if somebody has a heart attack, a child won't necessarily know what a heart attack is. They won't know what that means and they won't know what the effect of that is. So you need to check that they understand the same thing about it. They may have all sorts of strange pictures in their head about what that is. And unless you ask them, you won't know. It's really important that you keep a routine daily structure as much as you possibly can. When everything else is unstable, Having a routine is really helpful. And that kind of feeds back into when you go back to school after a bereavement, and that will vary from one person to another. But as far as possible, as much normal as possible is really important. And at this particular time, you know, we're all trying to find our way back into a new normal, whatever that may be. So, you know, it's kind of we're trying to keep it as predictable as we possibly can. It's vital that you keep communicating because. Understanding will change as they get older and their feelings and their emotions will change. You may see one thing one day and another thing another day, and they may think that it's okay to be really sad, but it's not okay to be angry. Or it's okay to be angry, but when I'm sobbing, that's not okay because I'm a boy and I've been told big boys don't cry. Well, please don't ever say big boys don't cry because that's really toxic to our poor blokes. You know, blokes can be sad too. Late breaking news. You know what? And actually, tears are incredibly healing. I had a wonderful friend who described the gift of tears. 
actually to be able to cry about something was a huge gift because that's a release. It's a physiological release. It's a really healthy thing to do. There are reasons why we have these. And there are times where those tears are from loss, but sometimes those tears are for empathy. Mm. So I am one. If you show me one of those uh, YouTube videos of American soldiers coming home and surprising their family, oh, I'm gone. Yeah, gone. Yeah, even worse if there's a dog involved as well. <laughs> oh, there's one, and I've I've seen I've seen it happen in real life, and that got me. I was in a school, and the dad had arrived. They were doing like a bit of an assembly at the end of the day, and the dad was standing near me, and they were going, "Oh yeah, there she is, there she." Is. And you saw him sort of getting there. And they opened the door. <sighs> And they were just waiting for her to realize. And she realized and she ran and she jumped and she wasn't a big girl. So her head, in my, in my memory, her head was probably around his waist height. Oh, wow. When she jumped, she got her head on his shoulder. <laughs> it was a huge jump. And it was her arms and legs were wrapped around him. And it was absolutely amazing. Wow. Makes you think of your kids. You go home and hug your kids. There's a, sometimes mm. those tears, it's empathy and it's really nice. To, sometimes it's really nice. Sometimes it's loss. But I do something I think is when you, when you are sad and you're crying, you are thinking about things and you are thinking about that person mm. and you are sad they've gone. So without, almost like the tears come from memory, your memories yeah. of that person. Yeah. And that's a lovely way to honour them as well. You know, it's lovely to be missed. <laughs> it's kind of I've already decided what my funeral's going to be like. It's quite hysterical. I'll come on to that later. It might give us a bit of a laugh towards the end of the podcast. A bit of light. I relief. might end the podcast and we go into uh, Sarah Jane's funeral at the end. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's fine. And yeah, I will still be here at the end of the podcast. <laughs> it's just your sixty-eighth episode of the Send podcast. <laughs> Send cast. We're, we're still here, but Sarah Jane's having a funeral right now. So we talked about how important it is to keep communicating, keeping those lines of communication open because the worst thing is isolation so some people will need to withdraw for a while that is fine that is okay but make sure you keep inviting them back and keep inviting them back and keep inviting them back and that works for your friends and family members it's really important to do that another thing that's really important is to allow anger and to give the space for that to happen but happen safely we've talked about ways of doing that Another important thing is to show your feelings, to allow other people. By doing that, you're allowing other people to express their feelings. And that's a really lovely way of honouring the person that you've lost. And if you're trying to teach a child how to cope with these moments where they feel awful, you can't do that by saying, you must feel like this. You know, it just doesn't work. You have to demonstrate, you have to model that it's okay to feel unbelievably distressed and concerned and worried and grieving and then you can be okay you know and then yet the following morning you'll get up and you'll make a cup of tea and you can all have a laugh about something else you've seen on television you know there is light and shade and it's really important to keep that tonal balance going and there was a whole area of things that I wanted to just talk about when you're talking specifically about things for autistic children who find it especially difficult to cope with grief and loss for a number of different reasons so there are things that you would need to do in terms of preparing them for any service that you want them to go to. So rituals are really important in recognising and honouring people who have died. So often we would have a funeral. But right now that's really difficult, isn't it? So it's how are you going to do that in a way that honours them? 
is there something that they could write or put into the coffin with the person that they loved? Is there something they'd like to share? Would they like to write a poem for them? Would they like to make something that recognises and honours them? Is there a part of that process that they could play? Could they write something that somebody else could read out if there are only six people allowed and then they can see it on Zoom? Could they, something that they've said, be shared? You know, that sort of thing. Rituals and traditions are really, really important because they help us to process that grief and that loss and it has to be culturally sensitive so you have to bear in mind how that happens and you were talking earlier about talking to the family and making sure that it fits in with what they're doing you need to know what that is so you don't put your foot in it and make it worse it's kind of yeah we don't want to bury someone who's been cremated we don't want to cremate someone who would normally be buried you know we have to there are certain rituals that it's worth honoring and you don't want to be the only miserable person at an incredibly celebratory funeral you know it's kind of it's worth saying you don't criticise somebody else for doing it their way. You yeah. need to know what that is. And young mourners, people who've lost parents, particularly at a younger age, have normally said, the vast majority of them have said that they would rather be part of a funeral or ritual than not, and that they regretted not being part of. And I know often as a parent you think, well, it's not a place for young children. But actually, once they get to a certain age where they're able to understand, it helps them to understand that person's really gone that they're not coming back. It is There's a reason why we have those rituals and why would we not want that same blessing for our children? So if you have, particularly if you have an autistic child, you might want to prepare them for the funeral or even a non-autistic child. It's good practice for everybody. So if you're having a funeral in a particular place, it's quite good practice for somebody safe to take them to that place in advance or to show them a film of that place in advance or to show them how a particular type of service works because they won't know what that service looks like, feels like, or how it might work. Yeah. And the known is always less scary than the unknown. So you prepare for it in advance and then when they go, they'll know what to expect if they're going. You know, So if they're one of the six people that's allowed at a funeral, I think it's six at the moment, isn't it? But that may change to be more. If they're one of the people who's allowed and you decide to go, they need to know what it might be because they've never experienced that before. So that will make it less scary for them. The next thing to think about is to think about the ceremonies and how those work. So to prepare them for that, so that can be really helpful. There are amazing social stories that talk about what you do when somebody dies. And again, I know we've talked about the amazing books Beyond Words as one of those about what to do when somebody dies from COVID that explains the process about people coming in to take away the body, that they'll be gowned and wearing masks and that nobody else will be allowed in the room. And it's very practical. And it explains things that you might not have thought of. Because historically, we wouldn't have expected people to come in looking like they're all hazmat suited up to take away the body of someone we loved who's died at home. You know, that's not what you'd expect. So you may need to prepare them for that. And it's best to have these thoughts in advance if you can, <laughs> if you can. I know it sounds weird, but preparing in advance saves an awful lot of heartache later for just about anything in life. And just touching on something there is someone dying at home is that's another thing. Mm. If somebody died, they got hit by a car somewhere, or if somebody's died in hospital, or if somebody's died in old people's home. But if someone's died your parent has died in your home. How you feel about your home could be totally different. Could be totally different. That's, a, that's another thing to really think about and be aware of how mm. they may feel about their home. And there have been rooms that I've not wanted to go back into because that's where somebody I love died. You know, it takes a lot to go back into a room if that was where they were. And if they're in isolation before as well, 
you may never want to go into that room again. Or you may need to have a process whereby that room becomes a safe place to go back in. You might have to think through how to do that. And like most things, we're feeling our way. I mean, historically in our society, the minute somebody gets ill, we send them away, don't we? We've sent them into hospital. We've taken them away in an ambulance. We haven't had them dying at home unless they've been particularly old. But there may be some people who've been shielding who say, actually, if you know that you're unwell, if you know that if you get that, and if you've made a decision in advance that if this happens to you, you do not want to be taken into hospital because of not being able to be with anybody, because of them being outside your bubble, because of not wanting any invasive things. So some people will make that decision. Then you need to prepare for what happens to your body afterwards. And that's something that people might not have thought through. I mean, I know it's something I wouldn't have thought through until right now. <laughs> it's kind of just think, huh. So what happens if that happens? You know, I think there's something really important about knowing and making decisions about how you want to die if you have a choice. Yeah. So particularly with some of the learning disabled community, they are having to make advanced choices about what happens if I get ill with. If I'm going to be incredibly stressed by being in a hospital, if I can't cope with being out of my safe environment, if that is going to make me distressed, unhappy and miserable and it's not going to affect the outcome, do I want to go into hospital? And the Books Beyond Words series has a book specifically for that need, which is around making end-of-life decisions as a learning disabled person, which is brilliant because that's something that it is really difficult to think through in advance. And I think if I were to say, I'm, I know I'm going to die in three weeks' time, do I want to die at home in my safe place with people I love or somewhere else being resuscitated for no purpose good question i should have that choice it's an interesting one because whenever you watch if you think of people dying in films they always if it's in a war scene they always have those last words and they go or it's a very peaceful thing or they cut away to the wind blowing or Mm. they show them walking towards a light that's not really what happens when someone dies at home And when someone does die at home, you then got to phone someone and say, yeah. and then there's a whole load of other stuff that happens. And yeah, there's a lot to deal with in that. And you said at the moment with COVID, people would come in those suits and that's a lot going on, which will really take that quiet death where you've held their hands and then kind of ruin the moment. Mm. It would really jar you watching that person's body being picked up if you're in the room or knowing that body's being, there's a lot to process in that situation. Whereas if they do die in hospital or if it is an old people's home, you're kind of choosing which bits you want to see. Mm. And then you're kind of ignoring the bits you don't want to see. Yeah, I'm not sure that's better. No, it's not. It is a thing to think about. You know, it's something to be, to consider. And if I, so if I were here now and I were thinking that my child was going to be seriously traumatised by seeing that happen, I might make a different decision. If it was me on my basis, just for me, I might make a different decision. So it's around having, you know, it's a really finessing and there's no right answer and there's no wrong answer. It's just, it is a complicated situation to think through. But I think it's one of those things that bears thinking about. And there's a whole area of end of life care and how the good death movement, I think, is really important. And I think one of the saddest things about COVID is you don't get to choose. 
the amount of choice that you get is it's a sudden illness and it's a really serious illness and that may restrict your choices but if we were looking at this podcast and somebody came to this after covid with a different situation it may be a different set of decisions which is why we're kind of talking about it in around in that way so there are some really nice social stories you can use they're always worth checking out and it's worth just running through those if you find yourself in that situation because i think stories are so vital I think we learn through stories. We've talked about this in other podcasts. I love stories. They are a way that we experience things that we haven't experienced ourselves. And that's brilliant. So that's really, really good. You must use concrete language when you're talking about death. And to avoid any doubt, you talk about someone being dead. It's best not to talk about people who have been lost. Otherwise, you're going to cause anxiety. You lose a child in a supermarket, that doesn't mean they've died. You know, otherwise you lost your teddy bear when you put it down. That doesn't mean the teddy bear's died. You know, it's, it's a very different thing. We need the right words to be utterly honest about what it is. I struggle a bit with passed away because I never quite worked out what passed away means. It's kind of, oh, I don't know. But they went into that nice little light that you were talking about a minute ago. Now, passed away into what? To where? What does that mean? No longer with us. It's not a bad one. So where have they gone? Have they gone to America? Are they coming back again? Depend where you believe. Mm. And being aware of what the family's view is, is absolutely vital. So there are different books that you would pick on if you have a Christian belief to books you pick on if you have a different belief. So it's around understanding and respecting the choice of the family that you're working with. And if it's yours, you may find that you have different beliefs in the family as well. So yeah. that's an interesting position. And finding out for the child what, what they think's happened and where they think. Because um, my mother-in-law who died when my eldest was two, she was at the funeral and, and she was buried. And then a week or two later, it was like, we're going to go out to the cemetery. We're going to go see Granny in heaven. She's like, yay, go see Granny in heaven. Didn't really got what the in heaven bit meant. Hmm. So we went to see her. She said, where's Granny? And we're looking at the mound of earth and the gravestones, sort of going, well, she's here. Where? Is this heaven? So my daughter's looking around going, where is she? Well, well, she's in, her body's in the ground, but she's up in heaven. Well, I want to play with her. Can I dig her up? Yeah, not a good move. <laughs> and so we're sort of saying, her body's, but she's in heaven. And trying to get that idea of her spirit and her body and her, it was, bit of light relief hearing my two-year-old trying to understand it hmm. and there are some lovely books as well so at the end i've got a whole load of books that we we'll talk about in the show notes and i'll give you the references to those which are amazing but can i just touch on one word i really really do not want you to share if you're talking to anybody and sharing that information is that someone died in their sleep if you say that someone died in their sleep and you're talking to a child, you're expecting the child never to want to go to sleep again. So you can prepare yourself for sleepless nights, if you say that, because they'll think, well, am I going to die if I go to sleep? What happens if mummy dies and they go to sleep? What happens if mummy goes to sleep and then they're going to die? It's just, it's not good. Not good. So dead, is dead, are the preferred terms, it, because it is just, it is as final as it says, and it is as clear as what it says. And then you ask your question, well, what is dead? What does dead mean? Then you have to start explaining what dead means. So it means that they are no longer alive. They're not going to be cold. They're not in pain. 
they're not unhappy, they're not distressed, they can't come back, they won't need their body anymore, their body will decompose. You can actually be quite quite straightforward about that. If you look at a live leaf and a dead leaf and then compare those, you can watch the process that the live leaf and dead leaf goes through. So you're talking about life cycles. And once they understand life cycles and the way that living things become dead things and dead things feed back into the life of a new living thing, then that actually is quite a consoling thought. And some cultures include that as part of reincarnation and that's part of their belief system as well. And that's fine. But whether you believe in reincarnation or not, the bits that we are made of become bits of other people and other creatures and other life forms and other bits of soil. And, you know, it's just the way physically it works. So just explaining the the physical reality is helpful. The metaphysical reality is down to your belief. And I'm afraid I'm not qualified to help you with that one. That's that's for your particular religious leader, whoever that may be, or none. So that's up to your group to decide. So we talked about using different examples. There are things that you can do that will actually help people to process their grief. I'm talking about children and adults here. So there are loads of lovely things that you can do. One of the best things to do is to have a memory box. So often one of the worries is that you'll forget the person who's gone. And if they're someone you love, you don't want to forget them. You want to remember them. So like we were talking about having photos of naughty and lovely. When my father died, I put together a, a box. I got a box from Jeremy's home store. Sorry, that wasn't meant to be an advert. <laughs> it's kind of this box. And put in some things that were his so that whenever I wanted to have a look at them, I could just get them out. And they smelt of him. They were things that he collected. And they still smell of him because he was a smoker. So, you know, it hangs around for years. <laughs> it's one of those things. So I've even got a bullet lighter because he used to smoke. So this bullet lighter is, will light at anything. It's amazing. And you keep things. You put things in there that remind you. So making a memory box is a really helpful thing. And the person can put in anything that reminds them of the person that they loved. They can put in something that they would want to say to the person that they loved. Some people write letters to the person who's gone. I did hear of somebody who kept sending emails to the inbox of somebody that they'd lost. And this person that I found had actually opened up a they found they'd open up a drawer and in the drawer they got details of an email and they actually answered it and they opened up this account and they found that this person had been sending emails to their loved one I think it was her father that she'd lost and because of that the person who found it responded and said look I'm sorry I've found these they were from you do you want them back or I'm just I'm worried that you're sending emails to this person who's not responding and they said no that's fine I knew they weren't here I just wanted to share that with them and then they made a really good relationship and they found each other as friends because they had that shared experience so a beautiful relationship came out of a, a slightly strange need to continue to have that conversation but the thing that I really like about that is that they were having the woman who wrote the emails was having a completely honest conversation with somebody she thought wasn't there somebody else read them honored them and wasn't scared by that and that's a beautiful So that's something that you could do. Having the perfume or the aftershave of somebody who's gone, the smell of them is really evocative. So smell gets straight to your brain and it tips over your memory circuits faster than most other things. We've talked about that before in sensory issues. The smell is is hot-wired. It's one of those things. So if ever I smell Hamlet cigars, I'm right there. (laughs) kind of Hamlet cigars and a pint in Castello. That's the two things that remind me of my father. So smell is a thing. You can have 
somebody's clothing made into a cushion or a pillow and that's a really lovely thing to do so you can actually have that close to you and you can feel that and it's theirs so that can be really comforting something you can physically touch and feel and that makes it more real that's a really nice thing to do or sometimes families make a memory jar so you can all sit around as a family and write down the lovely memory that you had or silly sayings that you had and each put them into a memory jar and then just whenever you it comes round to the anniversary of that person's birthday or their death. You can actually sit down and then just open those and have those memories back again. You might have forgotten the memory in the meantime, but you can share those together and that's a really nice way of doing that. Other people have spoken about having a remembrance walk. So going with somebody they know, love and trust to somewhere that they had been with the person that they've lost is a nice way of honouring them and say, oh yeah, they loved that or they would have loved that sunset over there or they really liked those weeping willows that was their favorite tree should we go and have a picnic underneath it probably not because i usually find there's far too many ants under a weeping willow but you know it's kind of whatever it is that made them happy and one of the films i was looking at was really nice it was talking about a teacher responding to a child and they said when the child did something really good they said, oh your mum would really love that wouldn't she and that just made the child feel safe and secure you didn't have to say anything more than that but it was honouring the fact that person had been there. So all of those things can be really helpful. Lighting a candle is really nice. If you can plant a tree or shrub, it gives you something to go that's tangible, that's real, that you know that that person existed. They haven't gone completely. They're still alive in your memory and in your heart, even if they're not physically with you. So all of those things can help. There's a, you know, I've got the wonderful five C's framework. Well, the fifth C is create. One of my C's is create. And you can create things that commemorate somebody and that can be absolutely gorgeous so you can sew something or make a painting or you can create a cushion from clothes or you can make a toy or you can have something they loved and decorate it and that can be a really beautiful thing so there's lots you can do that will actually help but I wanted to talk a little bit about what you do when you go back to school because that's the big thing isn't it so you've had this, all of this experience and it's been incredibly painful. And for some of you, you'll be welcoming back children who have lost someone really significant. So how on earth do you do that? The first thing is to think about whether they're coming back part-time or full-time. You need to talk to their family to understand the circumstances around what it is that's happened, how they lost their loved one, when it was, what their beliefs are, what they've done, how they've integrated that, the dates that are significant to them. So one of the things that I've come across which has been really helpful is to commemorate not only the day that the person died, but also their birthday. Because the first year is awful when you lose someone. So every time there's a significant date, so every Christmas, every holiday time, every so Christmas, Easter, if that's something you commemorate, their birthday and their death day are the four days that are going to be significant. And you need to be aware that they may be triggered by those. They may be behave differently at that particular point. So things that they've been able to cope with normally, they may just not be able to cope with right then. And it could be something as simple as saying, how are you doing today on that day? Without even saying, oh, I know your mother died today a year ago it's just kind of I know today's going to be a rough day are you okay and that can just help somebody feel a bit better and giving them a safe place and a safe person to go to when they feel like that and often when when, when you hear that as a person what that person has just said is I know it's your when your mum died and I'm thinking of you which is just someone reaching out and giving you basically yeah. not even touching you that person just gave you a really big hug 
Absolutely. I think it's such a beautiful thing to be able to do. But if you don't capture that and put it in your school records, I mean, here's the practical system stuff. If you don't have it in your school records, so you know that's the case and the form teacher's aware of it or your main teacher's aware of it, you can't do that. So you have to capture that information at the right time. And if you've got someone going from year six to year seven or changing schools, you need to pass that information along with the permission of the family, obviously. So you wouldn't do that without permission, but you can explain to the family why you think that might be helpful. And that's a really good thing to think about. So there is something really important about the school having an overall plan and a strategy for dealing with bereaved students. You do not want to be doing this on the fly. You want to have a plan and a process and a strategy for what you do. The reason for that is it makes it much easier for you to be able to support people without having to rebuild it from scratch. And the chances are you will come across this more often. So if you have a policy that says we will acknowledge an individual, we'll give them a safe space. This is how we recognise and support a family. This is what we might do to help a child through a funeral process. This is what we might do afterwards to give them specific bereavement counselling if they want it. They may not want it. Some children will want it, some will not. But this is what we have available. We may want to give them some sessions of play therapy. That's something that we may choose to buy in if they want it. So it's around having a process so you're not trying to rebuild that from scratch. And one of the resources I'll give you details in the show notes gives you the policy for doing that, which is brilliant. So there are policies, there are strategies, there are, there are samples that you can use and then adapt to suit your own school. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel ever. You need to be aware that a child may be very scared about coming back to school because they may be worrying about leaving anybody behind. They may feel insecure for all the reasons we've talked about. There is a decision to be made around who tells whom and when. So you need to talk to the child about whether they want to tell anybody and who they might want to tell because their closest friends will probably need to know. So you need to decide if the whole class needs to be told, if individuals need to be told and who does that. So some children may want to just have a quiet conversation with one or two friends. Some people might want a teacher to tell everybody so they don't have to have that conversation because they don't want to say it. They don't want to say it out loud. They just want people to understand. So it's about talking to the family and talking to the the child to work out what's going to work best for them. The other thing to be aware of is that staff may need help too. So there will be staff members who have had a really difficult time in COVID. There will be schools that have lost staff members. And you need to be aware of that and do some handing off from one person to another. As we talked about earlier, if, if you're feeling that that situation isn't something you personally can deal with, who else can help? So you need to be aware of that. And really, really importantly is to have a safe person and safe place. Now, you should have that anyway as part of your nurturing procedures and part of your safeguarding. You should have a safe person and safe place. Sometimes it's not going to be the person you expect. So you may find that a child gravitates towards somebody who isn't necessarily part of the pastoral team. And if you're able to be that person, please be that person. It may be the head teacher, it may be the deputy. If you can make time, that is one of the most important things you can ever do. Ofsted can wait. The child can't wait. They need that now. <laughs> We've talked about, I love your you referring to the fact that you can use your experience so if you have lost a parent or you lost somebody in a similar situation the fact that you've gone through that and you're still upright is very consoling you know it's that actually you can get through this and you can be okay so having a dead dad's club is brilliant there are wonderful resources online as well especially for teenagers who are supporting other teenagers who've lost a parent or lost a friend 
there will be, unfortunately, some of our students who've lost best friends to suicide, and that has happened during this period as well. So we need to be aware that that might be something that has happened. As you said at the beginning, pre-COVID, it was, was it one in 29 yeah. had lost a parent? So that child's going to feel very alone because mm. they are probably the only child in that class who's ever had that happen. So they're going to literally look at everyone going, you have no idea how I feel. Yeah. And then to find someone who has felt that way, who's been through that, that is going to be a huge life raft for that person. Absolutely. It doesn't have to be physical either. So there are some really nice resources. Cruise, which is a bereavement charity, C-R-U-S-E, have some lovely films done by teenagers talking about their experience of having lost a parent or a best friend or a sibling and how they coped with it and how they processed that. And sometimes seeing somebody your own age, your own gender, so who looks vaguely like you, talking about the sort of experiences you've had can be really helpful. So it doesn't have to be same somebody in the same school or the same town. It doesn't have to be somebody physically. And sometimes it's helpful for it not to be anybody you already know. Sometimes it's helpful for it to be somebody outside so you can really just say whatever you think and nobody's going to judge you because they're not going to take that back into your real life. Yeah. So please feel free to use those either as an adult or as a child or to support a child. That's all fine. So that's really, really helpful. And the final bit I wanted to pick up on, so I know we're going long again. I'm sorry. One of these days I'll learn to be short and brief, but there's just far too much to talk about, is around time and grief takes time. So the first year is unmitigatedly awful, usually, for most people. The first year is it's all really raw, it's all really present, it's all really difficult, and sometimes it's as much as you can do to get through one day. If you can get through the next 10 minutes, sometimes that's a triumph. So the first year is really difficult. The second year is not that much better, actually. It still feels like it should have been better. And annoyingly, the people around you often, if you've been bereaved, the people around you after a month will kind of get a bit tired of it because they get a bit worn out with it being the story. And you think, well, aren't you over it already? Actually, no, won't ever be over it. It will just change and it will become more copable with most of the time. But there will be moments that trip you up when you least expect them. So I was in a, an amazing concert that a young group had done and they were singing this amazing piece of music but unfortunately it was a piece of music that I'd listened to over and over again on repeat after my father died and this group I sang it and I wasn't expecting it and they just I was in bits I just had to leave and go and sit in the car because I could not be around anybody else when I heard that they went straight to the oh wow that was really raw moment and it was unexpected so there will be things that trip you up and it won't be when you're expecting them, it'll be at odd times. So to be aware of that. And it always takes longer than you want. And things will never be the same again. And sometimes they'll be better in a different way, but it will always just be different. It will always just be different. Yeah. So we promised to finish on something funny. Can I finish on something funny? Just before that. Yeah, go. So we've focused a lot on deaths due to COVID. Yep. But you also just mentioned that there have been suicides yep. over this time frame. And there are also relationships that have broken down. Yes. There are families that have broken apart. So when we're talking about all this, it isn't just the deaths due to COVID. We have got suicide, which then has another whole other world to work out why behind yes. it. And then you've got the relationships breaking down as well. So 
um, they might have come in to might have been last time we saw them it was a happy 2.4 family children tools that sort of thing with two parents and all that and what's coming back is the parent one of the parents is gone yeah and they might not be uh, volunteering that information because they're still dealing with that so there's a lot of things going on right now as well as the deaths there's a lot of other things happening in families that would also go through these same sort of emotions absolutely and i've worked with families and do coaching for families for individual members of adults primarily rather than children and one of the things that struck me was i was talking to a family who have gone through divorce and it was a long time ago it's over six years ago and they're still struggling with the consequences of divorce and abandonment as a result of that six years ago so when when we're talking about grief you can grieve opportunities you've lost you can grieve relationships you've lost you can grieve changes in your daily life but obviously the grief will be bigger more systemic when it's a person and when they have disappeared out of your life for whatever reason and if somebody has died by suicide that you know of then that will be ramped up and you'll have the trauma and the worry of why did that happen and often people will think should I have done something different could I have done something different and the answer is probably not and that that is a decision that they made. That is something that they did, not something that you caused. And then there's also COVID. Some people had after effects. They've never, they might not ever regain who. So sometimes um, a parent might be one person and then they have COVID and they almost come back another person. Yeah. Because let's say go for a very obvious, which might, but basically if someone loses their legs. Hmm. That person could be very physical. And as a child, you've gone and played football with your dad. Now you can't. So that person's still there, but it's a different relationship. And you'll go through all of these processes because you've kind of lost that person who he was. Mm. You've then got to build a relationship with the person who that person is now. And they've got to come to terms. There's a lot of, it's very complicated, but you're going to go through a lot of the same sort of things in those situations yes and a lot of people who've had covid have suffered from all sorts of issues to do with respiration and breathing and really are not able to be active in the way that they were before yeah at the moment we don't know whether they will recover long term you know but they are having a long tail of recovery and any period of significant illness that has a long tail of recovery is going to have a long-term impact we're talking about trauma so this is basically something that will cause a trauma to a child or to the people around them, or to them to recover from. And you can grieve the life that you had before in comparison to the life you have now. So that's kind of a, it's a big thing to deal with. And it's something we need to get better at dealing with, but understand that actually we're not going to get it all right. And it's okay not to get it all right. And it's okay to be human. And it's okay to be frustrated and cross and anxious and upset and all the rest, as long as that's not the whole of your life and all the time. You're going to end on something with a smile. You said. Yeah, we're going to end on a smile. So one of the things that, because I've, I've lost all sorts of people in my life, and I've decided that I, having been to a number of funerals and being just a teensy wincy bit bossy, maybe, I've decided that I'm going to express exactly what I want my funeral to be like in advance. And I 
I'm going to have a thing to be read out, which will include a paragraph that says, those of you who know and love me will not be at all surprised to note that I am choosing to be very specific and tell you exactly what I want you to do at my funeral. And that will cause everybody to laugh through their tears. And I love that idea. If I can do nothing else than to make them laugh and go, for God's sake, you couldn't have to have the last word even now, then that would be great. And leaving people their laugh and a smile is better than nothing. So I, I, do, I do think that you really should plan your funeral. It is your goodbye. I do think that actually you should do that. And um, two of my grandparents' funerals, I walked out really disappointed because the there was no eulogies given by the family. It was mm. done by the person who was leading the service. And it felt very impersonal. It was mm. my grandparents, yet I wasn't hit with an emotion of my grandparents. I listened yeah. to the way it was delivered. And I sit there and go, no, actually, if you want to say goodbye to someone, that's what a funeral is about, is you're saying goodbye. They should be saying goodbye too. It should be really a reflection of them. Absolutely. And I think, especially as you get older, there's, you've got lots of different times in your lives. So there's you growing up, there's you being a parent, there's you being a grandparent. You've got to try and capture all of that. And that's quite a challenge. So I do hope that you do update your funeral decisions as you get older, even more, you had more bits in. Yeah, one of the nicest funerals, well, not funerals, but the uh, the party after, the after party. <laughs> it's kind of, and it sounds a bit weird, but you know what I mean. I think in, the Irish would call it a wake, but we tend not to do those as... Anglicans. But the party afterwards, I remember sitting there with my grand's friends, and my grand died in her 80s, but lots of her friends were younger. And I was sitting there listening to them talk about her as a young woman. And it was brilliant. They described this glamorous lady who swept in from the sophistication of Sheffield into this very rural place in Shropshire and kind of came with this amazing look and sort of took over the entire place. She was a bit of a matriarch. And it was just brilliant to hear them describe somebody that I didn't know in the same way. It was just such a lovely, lovely life-affirming thing to do. And I was very tempted to kind of put a slightly disrespectable tune into the service. So we've had all sorts of funny things that we've played. And even if the vicar doesn't want you to do that or the they think it's not sombre enough for an appropriate ceremony, then there's nothing stopping you having an after party that is thoroughly fun. And I was very struck by the comic Ricky Gervais, who I have some issues with because I don't always like everything he says, but he was talking about his father's funeral, I think it was, and his family liked to take the mickey out of each other. And his older brother gave the vicar a eulogy to ring it, read out or gave them some stories, none of which were true. They were all complete fabrications. And so, of course, the family knew that this wasn't the case. And one of them started laughing in the middle of the service. And they could just see the shoulders going because they knew this was complete balderdash. And then it kind of went round. And there was nothing better because their dad would have loved, would have absolutely loved the fact that they were all having an amazing giggle. It was just the right thing. It was just what they needed. And that's the thing. I think it is that family connection. I think there's so yeah. much about death that is sad. I don't think it should be somber. I think it should be, it should reflect the person that they were. Absolutely. I think I'll have everybody turning up in red. That would be good for me because I love a bit of red. 
But do you uh, have a music supplied by Simply Red? <laughs> no, Monty Python, darling. <laughs> okay. You're not going to go for Chris de Burr? No. <laughs> no, not my sort of thing, Chris de Burr. Good. I had my Chris de Burr phase many, many years ago. I've grown out of it now. So we're, this is another epic podcast. We're not going to go through all the links, but Sarah Jane's given me seven, and I've also added in the cruise websites. We've got there's books. I think you said there's policies in here. Absolutely. There's Beyond, there's Beyond Words. Then there's resources for teenagers from Young Minds. There's a child bereavement. There's a video from Newsround. Yeah. Um, so lots of different resources. So hopefully people will find something which will help them in their situation. You are never alone, and there's lots of stuff out there to help. Definitely. So thank you for today. It's been. It's one of the things we're talking about death, but it's brought back lots of lovely memories. And I think that's the thing about death is they're not really gone if you remember them. And when you're talking about those memory jars, is that's, that's not a me thing. But what I do is I think of the people who have gone and so my mother-in-law loved baking. Mm. So lemon meringue pie makes me think of her. Sticky toffee pudding makes yeah. me think of her. Every time my trousers come down a bit and I have a slight builder's bum, uh, my wife points out, it's what my mother-in-law used to stick her hand over. So, no <laughs> see. so there's things they do and those memories will be with me till I die. And the uh, bloke I work with, uh, Kier Alfonso Coward, there are things he did that I will not repeat because he was Jamaican he wasn't, wasn't always PC. It's one of those things that out of context you wouldn't get or wouldn't find funny. But loving things he used to say to me, lovely memories that we shared that will always stay with me. And I think every person, you will always, Sarah Jane, you will have an impact on every person you meet. And you are not, you're not in charge of what they will remember about you. No, absolutely. But they will remember lots of different things. Some things you meant them to remember. <laughs> Sometimes, as you said earlier, when they tripped over that chair. Yes. When they fell over. When, when they got soaked by, there's a memory of my aunt that I wasn't there for, but my parents told me about. But there are memories which are there. and They're not always the most, but they are that person. It always goes into all that stuff about that person. So when you have got, that child is is finding out about their parents finding about that person who has gone finding out what they liked and start sort of going is oh it's they used to bake it's sort of like do you want to bake something mm. or you used to paint what sort of stuff do you want to paint or it's finding a way of giving them a connection back to that person is always a great thing so um, my father-in-law who died he loves the sea mm. so we go down to the sea We'll drop him into the conversation. So he's always with us. He's always on these holidays because we're always dropping into the conversation. And it'll be the same when my parents die. My dad's a sailor. My mum's an artist. So they'll always be dropped into conversation. And that's what mm. it's about. It's not forgetting. It's not saying it never happened. It's celebrating. Yes, they are gone. But what would they have liked? Do you remember when they were here? What would they would have done? And that's what keeps them alive. Absolutely. And remembering that. People experience that 
grief again in different periods. So if they lose somebody very early in life, their understanding will change and they may feel like they've lost them again as they get older. So if, for example, you were a girl and you thought you were going to get married and daddy was going to walk you down the aisle and daddy's not there, then even at a later stage in life, you can still have that grief at that point. But that's just the way life is and other things will come along. And it doesn't mean that they were less important at the time or even now. So thank you. Thank you for today. It's, it's been it's, it's been really interesting. Hopefully people find this useful, they'll find support, they'll find ways to help others. And I think right at the beginning you said helping someone through this is an amazing, one of the greatest calling. The highest said. calling in life. Yeah. So hopefully if, some, if this podcast helps someone make a difference in this situation, that will be amazing. Absolutely. So thank you for listening to the show. Um, Everything I've mentioned, all the uh, links will be in the show notes. So please head to the website, www.thesendcast.com. To find those, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to through there as well. You can sign up to our newsletter. You can follow us on social media at The Sendcast, on Facebook, The Sendcast, on Instagram, The Sendcast, and LinkedIn. Just search for Sendcast. And if you want to get in touch, let us know your thoughts, suggest topics, or anything else, please send an email to hello at thesendcast.com. And if you have enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into the virtual Send Conference? As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this is a conference that, like the Sendcast, is run by us here at B Squared. It covers all aspects of special education needs and disability, but what makes this conference different is you access it across the internet. You don't need to go anywhere. The conference runs twice a year in March and November, and each conference has 12 highly valuable sessions designed to help you, with each session having something you can take away. You can buy tickets for future events or past events. The videos are always available. You can watch them on your own. You can watch them in school. You can watch them as a staff uh, inset day. You can use them in lots of different ways. And the cost for each conference is £60, and this covers the entire school, not per person. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we're even offering a 10% discount just by using the code SENDCAST10. That's the one and a zero at the end with no spaces. And for more information, go to the website, which is www.virtualsendconference.com. And if you are a parent, we have also launched Parent Talks, which is a similar approach, but designed for parents. And the cost for Parent Talks is £10 per family. And that is for all 12 online talks with an introduction from David and Carrie Grant. And for more information on Parent Talks, go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parent talks. So thank you for listening to this podcast. We will be back next week with another episode of The Same Cast. So it's goodbye from me. And it's sending lots of love to you and those you love. Take care and stay safe. Goodbye from me too. Bye.